Hello, and welcome to a special crossover edition of the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet. Today is May 27th, 2022. And besides being the day before the Memorial Day holiday weekend and the unofficial beginning of summer, it also is Robert Califf's 99th day in office. Today, my colleagues and I are going to look back at Dr. Califf's accomplishments and trials and tribulations during the traditional first 100 days of his second term running the FDA. I'm joined by a host of editors from our sister publications, MedTech Insight and HBW Insight, to break down the issues from the drug, device, and health, beauty, and wellness product perspectives. From the pink sheet is executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. From MedTech Insight are managing editors Elizabeth Orr and Reed Miller. And from HBW Insight, we have editor-in-chief Ryan Nelson and managing editor Malcolm Spicer. We've got a lot to get to, so let's just jump right in. I think everybody here would agree that Califf joined the agency in February with a lot of goals and priorities, but as usually happens in government service, unforeseen events and crises intervene. Califf knew he would have to take over the FDA's management of the COVID-19 pandemic and with it, the ongoing controversy and complaints about vaccines for children under the age of five. And although he said he knew that the agency's food program needed reform, I don't think he fully anticipated the fallout from the infant formula shortage that now is dominating the FDA news cycle. Before we get to some of the specific topics we expect Caleb to cover, I wanted to get some thoughts on how these and other crises will affect his goals going forward. Caleb and the FDA may be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, but problems like these tend to suck up a lot of the oxygen in the room. So who wants to start? Thanks, Derek. I'll go ahead and get started. And good morning, everybody. Really great to be here with all, all five of you today. Uh, and thanks, uh, Derek and, and, and Matt, for uh, getting this crossover podcast going. Uh, hopefully, we can post it on uh, HBW, too. Um, I, I wanted to say that uh, in answer to your question, uh, specifically, uh, Derek, I mean, uh, uh, Dr. Califf, Califf came back to the FDA with a, uh, you know, in the first year or at the end of the first year of the uh, a Democrat uh, president, probably with the expectation that, you know, he could do a lot more in this in this stint as commissioner that he could as in his first, which was, you know, truncated because uh, uh, the end of uh, President Obama's presidency. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it just probably has uh, occurred to him since then, specifically lately, that what was he thinking? Uh, you know, that Washington is so susceptible to turmoil, both political and regulatory, uh, that he he's, might, might be thinking, what was I thinking about being able to actually accomplish something <laughs> instead of just keeping uh, keeping things afloat? Uh, not to say he isn't trying, and I, th- and I give him credit for being the, the uh, official, the expert for the job, but I think it's, uh, you know, uh, the, the grand plans he might have had are you know sabotage really or sunken by just all the the individual not little but individual problems that are arising as you mentioned the formula shortage and other things yeah malcolm there was a uh, a recent hearing where i think he was uh lamenting uh um the uh the 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 positions he's in and then sort of kind of wondering why anyone under 70 would even want the uh the commissioner job so you can sort of see his uh, um <laughs> his you know real uh um i think sort of admiration for everyone at fda and the uh the agency's mission but also sort of this uh the sense that sort of kind of uh man this is a lot to deal with so uh um you know i think that's a it's a good observation and in a sense 
you know, it it's really it's it's a reminder to the American public how much the FDA actually does regulate. I mean, we we know because we're we're following it closely. But you know, when they say the FDA regulates twenty percent of the U.S. economy, I mean, it's things like infant formula that people don't pay much attention to, and until there's a problem like what's happened, what happens now, or you know, you're you're looking at vaccine uh, approvals and so forth. It's a you know. It, it it becomes like a public education moment for for Caleb as well as for uh, you know for people who are trying to figure out what's going on. You also wonder if he has the uh, the support he needs. I know there's been talk about specifically within the context of like the uh, the infant um, formula issues about whether or not uh, FDA is adequately resourced there. And I'm sure Malcolm could speak to that better than I. But I also read from. Um, uh, from Pink Shooter, uh, I, I believe it was that um, you know it seems to be relying very heavily on on Woodcock, right? Um, who's uh, what assistant uh, uh, commissioner is it, or deputy commissioner uh, at the FDA, and and seems that she's being stretched in a number of different new directions. And you kind of wonder, uh, you know, does it does he? <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure she's good for the job, but uh, does he also need some uh, some additional help considering everything that's going on there? Yeah, he appointed uh, Janet Woodcock, who's the principal deputy commissioner and former CEDAR director, to uh, to kind of oversee some of the enterprise level issues that are going on in the food on the food side of the house, which generally doesn't get a whole lot as much attention as the drug side does. Uh, which Malcolm could probably speak to as well. Is hasn't been um, as you know, universally well received as maybe some thought, but. Um, you know that that's a, and there have been calls too for uh, like a not necessarily a food czar, but some sort of person to oversee all of the food programs in the veterinary medicine program that would kind of be in between um, Dr. Califf and the center directors, so they could you know that has a food background that could you know deal with some of that stuff. Yeah, the agency has uh, used various structures over the years to. Uh, Organize its sort of very uh, um, wide range of responsibilities. I mean, there have been uh, uh, many proposals uh, about sort of uh, spinning food off and you know making FDA just the federal uh, uh, you know drug administration. Obviously, it could cover would cover more than drugs there, but uh, getting the food out of the, the kids or making that not uh, not be the F in uh, FDA anymore. Uh, you know that the, the uh, Infant formula uh, crisis may sort of be the uh, the impetus for that down the road, and uh, um, you know, obviously, if there's uh, organizational organizational improvements to be uh, to be made uh, um, uh, for right now, uh, Janet Woodcock is uh, obviously sort of uh, um, uh, one of the best people at the agency to try and uh, try and make them. She sort of remade uh, um, uh, the drug reviews over the years with uh, user fees, and I think uh, one of the challenges, uh, perhaps on the food side, is that there's not uh, as much uh, um, this kind of money. Uh, um, available to do the kind of uh, uh, things that she was able to do on the uh, on the drug side. Um, in addition to the questions about internal support, there's also external support. I mean, you know, he barely got confirmed a second time. It was 50 to 46 to 1 because there were concerns about, I, if I remember correctly, um, the amount of dealing he had had with pharmaceutical companies. And so I wonder if that perception that he, you know, isn't, getting a lot of external backing, a lot of official backing has hampered him in some ways. Yeah, yeah if you look at it on paper, you've got, uh, you know, a Democratic president and uh, Democratic control of uh, both houses of Congress. So uh, um, you wouldn't think you would get a lot of uh, um, 
oversight uh, headaches and you'd have a uh, you know several years to sort of implement uh, your uh, your projects uh, like Malcolm was saying at the top that sort of kind of were, were cut short uh, uh, last time because of the change of uh, um, of presidents but uh, um, you know it really has not worked out that uh, that way and uh, um, as you're pointing out uh, Liz the uh, confirmation battle was much more bruising than I think uh, um, anyone thought uh, going in given that he got uh, you know 80 some votes uh, um, the first time around. Yeah, I would imagine that, excuse me, but um, I mean, I think you you see some signs of, of uh, you know, just what is uh, pervasive throughout like the US government, just in terms of, you know, institutions all the way to the top. I think it's, you know, these days, just uh, being a leader in any of these areas um, has got to be challenging just because of the how polarized everything is um, in terms of, you know, reaching compromise. I mean, we see that all the time and, you know, things that we're covering on HBW Insight where it's, um, you know, between the NGO communities and so forth and, and and industry just not being able to find any kind of common ground. And then when you when you take that to issues like, you know, does FDA need to be doing food safety differently and so forth? Um, you know, speaking of those external forces, you know, how, how do you as a leader come to uh, the the right decisions when you have, you know, just such a polarized audience that's feeding into those? Um, and and what Matt mentioned, you know, the this formula emergency and crisis could be the impetus for uh, renewed and more serious consideration of a separate agency for food. Um, you know, there is, I think there, through inertia, you know, we're just accustomed or the public and lawmakers are accustomed to food and drug being together regulated by a single administration. But, but the, you know, the product groups, uh, including med tech with drugs, they're, they're oil and water. There is, you know, and I, and I know that, uh, I don't know, but I, I sense that there's a big divide at FDA as far as the importance of one or the other. Um, and and but they also there's a big difference in how each uh, the different parts are regulated. Uh, and it, it really, it, the, the unfortunately, it may take this emergency to uh, get the ball rolling for serious consideration. Having said that, and uh, if you know if, if it doesn't go that way, uh, Commissioner Caleb has said in the last couple of days of testimony in, in Congress that you know it we can have a you can have one person in charge, but it takes the you know it's the system that makes it work, and they do not have an effective system for uh, regulating regulating and monitoring the safety of food products across the country, uh, and um, so uh, go from there. But uh, he you know I, I think I just think that. We're not going to see a single person named the food czar or whatever they might call the title because it's a it's a systemic problem. I'm curious yep. of you guys to get your take on this. I mean, just uh, if we're talking about you know Kayla's first hundred days, but what about the rest of the year? Uh, you know how I know that the the, the infant uh, formula shortage. I think he said yesterday is going to be at least another couple months uh, before uh, the, the shelves are fully stocked again. I mean, just how much is this issue going to occupy uh, Caliph, and and to what extent is this really going to detract from other issues going forward this year? What you guys think? Well, that that's the that's the million dollar question, and we just illustrated with this last. 10 minutes or so that it actually does take up all the oxygen in the room if <laughs> we haven't talked about one other single thing yet. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, 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 you know, and to the certain, to a certain extent, COVID did the same thing, um, you know, your uh, last year. I mean, it, and it's still, and to some extent still does where, you know, they, I'm, I'm sure he'll be, they will be 
uh, expected to, you know, devote either devote more resources or, you know, pay a lot more attention to that side of the house and kind of and make some changes. And, you know, whether, as Malcolm said, it's, you know, uh, you know, they consider in Congress, you know, creating a new agency, which would take a long time, most likely, but or do something, you know, do something else, increase staffing, you know, change, regu- change, regular regulatory policy, whatever you want to do, you know, all that takes away from things like clinical trial reform or real world evidence and things that, you know, that uh, stakeholders on the drug side, on the device side and and so forth are are looking to kind of get things done. Like, again, not to say they can't walk and chew gum, but, you know, if the first five meetings that he has in the morning are to make sure that the Abbott plan is coming online as quick as possible in Sturgis, Michigan, you know, that means that Cedar director Patricia Cavazzoni can't have a meeting at that point or, you know, uh, Jeff Shuren can't get in there to have a meeting for on on issues that they have that are a priority. So, you know, this is what this is this is kind of what I was getting at with that was that you know these things and you know, and I'm not going to pretend to be a fortune teller, but I don't think this is going to be the last crisis that comes up. So you have to you know, in between all of that, you have to try and get done what you want to get done, and you know it's it's incredibly difficult and you know. Into into a certain extent, you know, his predecessor was dominated. His term his term was dominated by the by the pandemic, and you know, so um, you know, it's an interesting question and and something certainly to watch going forward. But I do want to get to some of the specific areas that um, specific non infant formula related issues that uh, he's going to have to deal with. So on the drug front, Kayla said he wanted to work on improving the clinical trial system. He wanted to advance the use of real-world evidence. He also acknowledged that accelerated approval reforms were needed and that op- the opioid response um, needed to be improved. And we've seen some movement in those areas. The user fee bill moving through Congress now has accelerated approval changes in it. On the opioid front, the agency uh, indicated it was considering mandating disposal envelopes to be included with prescriptions um, to reduce the amount of unused medicine in homes. And there have been other you know, other things going on uh, in the, in, with that as well. And we saw clinical trial diversity guidance released. Um, Matt, do you have any thoughts on other areas where we see movement, um, you know, up to this point, on the, at least on the drug side? You know, I think you outlined it pretty well, uh, um, Derek. Uh, you know, those uh, issues uh, are sort of kind of near and dear to uh, Dr. Califf's heart after sort of kind of the career sort of looking at uh, the clinical trials. And uh, you know, if you think about sort of kind of the uh, the the broader challenges and uh, Maybe even crises of the past that uh, FDA has fa- has faced and now sort of become uh, policy initiatives. He was he was well positioned for that. That's sort of kind of that, uh, um, you know, this uh, accelerated approval, uh, um, you know, in the wake of Agihelm that uh, um, you know happened last year, and sort of thinking about sort of kind of how to uh, you know rethink uh, perhaps that uh, that pathway, or at least sort of kind of better uh, communicate sort of what that pathway means to uh, both sponsors and. Uh, um, you know, uh, physicians and uh, um, and payers, and then uh, you know the whole question of uh, how to conduct uh, clinical trials uh, uh, better in the uh, the wake of the murder of uh, George Floyd, and through all the uh, uh, showing of uh, you know sort of uh, uh, unequal uh, access to healthcare and uh, 
everything else that the pandemic exposed. Uh, you know, there's a real push for uh, clinical trial enrollment uh, diversity initiatives, and sort of going to how to make sure that the uh, the populations being studied to reflect the populations of the United States. And he would be, uh, you know, perfect to sort of kind of work on those uh, um, those projects. But uh, you know, because his uh, his calendar has been sort of full of uh, trying to get. Uh, um, uh, babies not to starve. That uh, it's uh, um, it's not something there's been a whole lot of uh, progress on these uh, these past few months. Yeah, I mean, it, he's even talked about um, you know trying to to make IT improvements and you know it, and break down kind of the siloed computer systems that they have there to increase efficiency. Um, you know, and some of that's going to be partially funded with user fee dollars. And that's still hard for me to believe that they have each center has a has uh, uh, has a different IT system and they don't talk to each other very well, you know, in this day and age. But, you know, that's another discussion for another day. Um, since we mentioned clinical trial diversity, I wanted to I wanted to go to um, to Reed Miller. Um, yeah, you've seen some movement on the device side with this as well, right? Yeah. And uh, so, as I think you might have mentioned, the the FDA recently put out a, a guidance saying um, basically that every trial that, that they look at should have a plan for how it's going to try to do a better job of making sure that the population in in the trial reflects the population of people that actually would need that device or drug uh, in the real world. And, and there are some cases where um, diseases that disproportionately affect women or or at least proportionately, and, and the trials often don't reflect that. Um, and there's a couple things uh, you know, diabetes and, and a few other things where we see sort of worse outcomes in in, in certain kinds of minorities. So this is not a new issue, though. Uh, you know, yes, there there has been this sort of uh, consciousness or, uh, raising in, in the country about just all these things that are standing in the way of equal access to, to healthcare. But the the device industry has at least outwardly cared about this for a long time, um, and uh, you know, some companies have invested. In trying to see what they can do to get a, a more diverse group of people in clinical trials, then the worst case scenario would be that you would get something approved based on a trial that was all white men, and then you find out uh, later on that it, it it has disproportionate impacts, or it doesn't work, or there's some safety issue um, in women or uh, in other diverse populations. Uh, but but I think a lot of it is just that they really just want to have a better outreach to some um, people who just don't have equal access to healthcare. So one of the things, for example, um, Abbott announced, and they keep telling me uh, new parts of this deal, is they're trying to just get more people of color and and, and women to, to become uh, physicians that run clinical trials, and also nurses. Uh, and I've talked to them about that a couple of times, where you know just a lot of the people that are in these um, communities, they tend to work more in community health situations and uh, they've decided like, well, I don't really want to get into clinical trials. That's something for people who want to spend their whole life fighting with NIH. So they have to um, kind of out outreach those people. So like, no, you can be part of a clinical trial and you can really help uh, the community that you're working in. So they're investing uh, just money in, into scholarships uh, at traditionally um, black colleges and universities that are connected to medical schools and, and things like that. Um, and then the National Academies recently issued a statement, uh, which was a report that was actually asked for by Congress a couple of years ago. So even before this sort of became a hot issue, 
um, on clinical trials. And basically what they're recommending is kind of what what the FDA has put in their guidance that you you just have to have a plan in your clinical trial for how you're going to deal with that. So it, it's not clear like if this is just kind of window dressing um, or like how much of a difference it's going to make, because particularly with with women in clinical trials, I've been hearing about this for 20 years that for whatever reasons, they just don't have enough women in, in clinical trials and everybody kind of knows it's a problem. It's just a question of what can they really do about it? And one thing they can do about it um, is just make it easier to be in a clinical trial. And that gets to the the decentralized trials thing that I think, you know, it matters more for drug trials because there are more drug trials. Um, and of course, you really can't totally decentralize a trial of like a, you know, like a heart implant or something like that. You're going to have to see that person. Um, but there's a lot of technology that can assist in that. I've been talking to a number of companies that either do sort of the IT part of it where they just help uh, clinical trial sites keep track of all their data um, and know which patients are which. But there's also the whole growth of remote monitoring and, you know, sort of wearable devices, um, although not just kind of simple things like the Apple Watch, but, but you know, patches and things like that that can collect data continuously um, wherever the patient is. And so it's not so centered on, oh, we have to get this person to the center at a certain time. And if we don't, then we lose their their data. So um, we're trying to understand kind of where MedTech fits into that. But there's certainly a lot of money um, being put into just trying to new ways of n not just, you know, seeing patients, you know, telehealth and, and that sort of thing, but how that can actually transform the clinical trials process. And then that will hopefully make it easier for all kinds of different people to be in clinical trials. On the other hand, there's some of the solutions are just kind of like, the people need a ride, can we get them an Uber? It's it's not that complicated. So, I mean, it remains to be seen, but it is something that certainly we're seeing a lot more companies talk about, specifically on this. I mean, they're also talking about kind of, you know, their impact on society in general. Uh, it's become kind of like a fad thing to do, but but particularly with this clinical trials problem, I think they just see it as, you know, this is the last frontier of who we can sell devices to um, in the United States are the people that just are just being kind of falling through the cracks of the system. And so um, we're following that. And I mean, the companies are investing a lot. I mean, it's millions of dollars, not billions of dollars. So we'll just have to see how that all plays out, say, in the next five to 10 years, um, if that actually transforms anything. Yeah, I know there's there's been I want to say there's been some issues and uh, Congress may be trying to address this. And for some reason, I'm blanking on it right now. But um, there are issues on like who can pay for what in some of that in some of those situations and how much technology can you provide without it, you know, and so forth um, that I think Congress is trying to work on. Um, but I mean. We we've and Reed, you just said it. We I mean we've seen a bunch of this, uh, a lot of talk about this in the you know on the drug side, and we've even seen um, um, Oncology Center of Excellence Director Rick Pazder you know kind of make overtures in the direction of we're going to start forcing companies to do this, um, you know to have more diverse trials, and there'll be consequences if you don't you know kind of if you don't meet your targets and so forth. But do you think that? Do you think that they'll they'll be able the FDA will be able to kind of push sponsors harder in that direction as opposed to just saying this is our recommendation please try to do it? Well, they can definitely say, um, as far as I understand it, they can say like, well, your your application, your IDE doesn't have a diversity plan. Do it again. You know, basically send mm -hmm. give your homework back. Um, 
uh, you know, in terms of like what what would be the ramifications if you if you did the trial and you, you didn't have enough people? I, I like I said, I think it probably affects more on the drug side. Um, you know, because if you say you're putting in like a knee implant, there's no sort of um, a priori reason to think that that's going to play out differently if you didn't have um, the right ethnic mix. Uh, mm -hmm. have, there's other issues that could come up. Um, and, and I think ultimately that might just impact the the indication you get, which then gets into the whole issue of like, well, how much does the indication really matter if all the doctors on the other thinking like, yeah, I know you didn't actually put this in any women, but I think it works in women. I'm just going to put it in women. You know, that it just depends on what what device we're talking about. You know, so many different kinds of things um, mm -hmm. could impact reimbursement. We'll just have to see how it goes. I mean, I imagine it's probably there'll be a lot of pushback um companies will say like oh it was too hard we didn't we couldn't find those people you know we spent all this money um it'll just become another kind of thing that uh, people talk about in advisory panel meetings and that sort of thing but i i think it's probably going to be a lot harder for them to 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 say like ah well you know we tried um and i've, I've seen that i've been to advisory panel meetings where usually it's the patient representative says at the end but they get no vote says hey you know what was the deal with with the number of women that you got in there and they just say like ah well we tried um i guess that's probably not gonna go over as well now but again i think i think on the drug side probably the stakes are a lot higher just my understanding just just because you know it's sort of a more of a black box of what, what happens when you take a drug versus something mechanical for example um like what what difference does that really make and if you really don't have a diverse population then do you really understand uh what it does so i, I think that's probably where it'll make the biggest difference now it also remains to be seen, like I said, this this push towards high tech decentralized trials. I I mean I think that will become a thing. It just remains to be seen, like how patients respond to that. I mean we heard a lot about telehealth, but if you actually look at the number of visits even during COVID that were telehealth, it wasn't like the majority. I mean it went up for all kinds of different fields, but it wasn't like it didn't really like totally transform. We haven't seen doctors' offices shutting down left, right, and center. Um, but that could change. One of the issues is coming up um, is that, of course, the the health field in general is having a huge problem with people just giving up and quitting. And so where are those people going to go? One possibility is they might come work for a company, I, I like a company called Talk to Assure, which is basically kind of trying to rethink the, the whole health encounter from the ground up. So they are not only like a tech solution, a telehealth solution, but they also actually employ professionals. And we're seeing a lot more of that kind of hybrid of like, yes, we are a tech company. We do kinds of all kinds of cool technological things. And we have artificial intelligence with the data and all that, but they actually employ actual healthcare professionals as opposed to just being one or the other, or just like, oh, we're just an IT vendor. And so, you know, that, that would transform everything we think about healthcare. When you think about it, it's all about the doctor's office visit. There's a, there's a real possibility that sooner than we might think that you know, we're going to be much more um, used to just having all these gadgets sent home with us. And of course, then part of that is they have to work. Something I've talked to a number of people about is it just can't be a thing where like you give somebody who needs to monitor their their arrhythmia. You can't give them a device and send it home and and and, and have it like tell them that their Wi-Fi can't connect to it or they have to download some kind of driver or something like that. That is just not going to work. Um, so companies are are very cognizant of that. And um, that's going to require a lot, a lot of a lot of effort and hiring a lot of people who understand those things other than just the engineers. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting issue and and this is something that, you know, 
that, that has been talked about, especially in the wake of the pandemic, since a lot of clinical trials you couldn't do in-person visits for a long time, this was kind of the solution that they came up with and they proved that it worked. So um, this is kind of seen as like the next kind of the next, like you said, the next frontier to, um, you know, to sort of, uh, you know, expand the, you know, potential number of patients that can be in trials and, 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 and so as well as, you know, increased diversity and, and, and so on and so forth. So very, very interesting issue that we'll be watching going forward. Staying with devices, um, Elizabeth, there have been a number of other issues that Caleb has had his hand in, uh, right? Oh, yes. Um, so, you know, I know many of us have been covering the user fee renegotiations. I don't know how that's gone on the drug side, but on the device side, it's been pretty spirited. Uh, they actually reached the agreement almost two months later than they were supposed to get it to Congress. Um, you know, and it actually, what they did was they, each side, you know, between industry and the agency got sort of a big thing that they wanted. You know, industry was allowed to claw back a certain amount of fees if the FDA doesn't spend the money. And um, the FDA has a new pre-market program called the Total Product Lifecycle Advisory Program, TAP, which um, is supposed to increase early interaction with developers of innovative products. Um, it's been going through Congress, though, now that they finally have it relatively smoothly. Um, you know, there are ongoing concerns about the FDA's failure to meet benchmarks that it laid out in the device user fees, but I believe that's the same across the board. Um, and the other thing that has come out of the device center in the last several months is, yeah, they've been promising to revamp the quality system regulation or QSR for, you know, years and years. They've been trying to harmonize it with international standards. And the week Califf was confirmed, they finally released the draft. Um, period on the draft ended this week. Uh, we're seeing concerns about sort of the way certain terms were defined, certain provisions that that industry thinks may be overly burdensome, and also a lot of concern about the timeline, because you know the FDA is proposing a one-year transition period, which um, industry is saying may be too short for companies that aren't already in compliance with the international standard, um, and industry is suggesting two or even three years. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Um, and also, you know, I guess the final thing that Calif, well, not the final thing, but one of the other things that Calif needs to handle is the transition into post-pandemic mode, which, you know, is figuring out how to transition all of the diagnostics that were cleared under emergency use author the uh, emergency use authorizations into either traditional clearances or get them off the market entirely. Um, and, you know, the GAO, the Government Accountability Office, has said that the agency needs to develop a policy on the use of unauthorized testing, public health emergencies. The FDA agreed in theory, so it'll be interesting to see if anything actually comes of that. Um, so, you know, Califf, you know, on top of everything we've already discussed, he definitely has his, hand full, his hands full with just keeping, you know, all the processes on the device side chugging along, I guess. Yeah, the user fee bill is is a treasure trove of issues that the FDA has to deal with. It seems like yeah. every every time around, and yeah. it you know you said it 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 did move it's moved through relatively smoothly so far. But the 
the the one thing that actually generated some uh, complaining, you know, during the House committee markup was a device issue, and it was the definite like clarifying the definition of remanufactured versus serviced device, which. I guess a lot of people yeah. have been arguing for, but they couldn't reach some kind of consensus on, so they had to leave it out. <laughs> yeah, and that actually, I mean, I could hear the frustration, you know, in that hearing because, you know, very obviously it's something that is important to industry and it's something that's important to a lot of the representatives because, you know, they're hearing about it from the hospital side and the healthcare provider side and from the industry side. But, you know, they can't realistically reach an agreement on it in time to get it in this user fee package. And, you know, there are some other things that aren't making it into the user fee package. Like, you know, they've been arguing about LDT regulation for years, um, lab developed test regulation for years and years. And there are some, ver the Senate version does include um, some language that would give the FDA more oversight over LDTs. The House version does not. So it'll be interesting to see how that comes out of the committee or how and, that comes out of conciliation. Well, and like you said, post-pandemic mode is going to be is going to be a big deal for the drug side, too, because you've got vaccines that are only emergency use authorizations at this point in some groups. You've got a lot of drugs that only have emergency use authorizations that are widely used in hospitals at the moment. And as soon as the emergency officially goes away, all those labels get deleted or those indications get deleted so they have to figure a way to either like you said get them get them approved which you know maybe more than some sponsors are willing to do or you know kind of are you know like what like what they've done with some of the other you know declared emergencies kind of keep it going the emergency situation going in the background even though everyone else has moved on from it to kind of make sure that these products stay on the market it's a very it, it it's a that it, that alone is another one of these all-day conversations we could have if we were talking about this in more detail but um needless to say there are several public health emergencies that are actually declared at the moment for covid and the one that affects the fda is can can be remain even though some of the other ones get lifted so it's it's it, you know it's a very convoluted type of situation yeah. but might be very necessary for the fda for the, the drugs and the device in the test in the test yeah now just following up on that derek um now on the drug on the device side they have laid out a proposed pathway for how they're going to transition everything or what they want companies to do you know to transition or get off the market at this point they're waiting for the public health emergency to be officially lifted for the process to start. Is there anything like that on the drug side? Not yet, unfortunately. They, they've they been asked about it. They said we're working on it. We have yet to see anything specific written down, which, you know, again, it it's not as simple as saying you need to do this, this, and this. I mean, it's a, you know, it, it's a we we know kind of the path the um not the pathway but the uh, the the ease that will have to occur they'll get a a notice that says in I think it's sixty days the emergency is going to end so you need to decide what you're going to do but I th I'm I'm guessing the plan is that the sponsors of a lot of these these pro these drugs and vaccines and so forth will be will be know will know well ahead of that that this is the plan, this is when we're going to try and sunset this. 
and you know you need to have kind of your plans in place or get them started to you know kind of move in that direct you know move in the direction to where we don't have to pull it off the market you know on whatever day they decide to choose but um my guess is that since you still have the zika public health emergencies ongoing yeah everyone remembers zika that 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 was several years ago there's some public health emergencies that are eight nine years old they're still going even though we don't talk about them anymore and they're not really emergencies anymore but it's because they need to keep these products on the market yeah derek did a great story a couple months uh, back that we should uh, link to in the show notes sort of kind of listing all the uh um uh ongoing emergencies sort of some almost uh about to celebrate their uh, their 10-year anniversary of uh, of uh being an emergency so uh, um hopefully we're not going to add uh, smallpox to that list but it's a uh, um it's a it's a complicated uh mechanism in and of its own uh, beyond uh, um anything else that we have to cover yeah exactly so while we're on the user fee bill um you know in a normal year that takes up a lot of fda's time um ryan the health beauty and wellness area could see some substantial changes in the bill that's already under construction now yeah thanks derek um yeah, I mean, the I think FDA commissioners of a bygone era probably didn't have to, th- you know, maybe didn't have to uh, think all that much about cosmetics. Uh, it maybe it was a program that ran fairly smoothly. It was it was didn't require a lot of resources. Um, but uh, over the decades, you know, I think it's become more and more of a uh, more and more of a, a, a topic in an area for FDA that they really need to invest time and energy in. Uh, a couple weeks ago, yeah, that that the user fee, FDA user fee bill that um, was released in discussion form uh, from the Senate Health uh, Committee uh, had, uh, yeah, a portion that would uh, modernize cosmetic cosmetics regulations. Um, so this is something that's been sort of in the works. I mean, it's been over a decade where Congress has been uh, introducing proposals to reform the federal oversight system for cosmetics. Um, but you know it's 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 certainly a serious effort it's not going away um and this uh, particular proposal from the senate health committee um is like others we've seen but it would make for a very different fda in terms of its relationship and dealings with the cosmetics industry uh, this would be an fda that's that's far more knowledgeable about the marketplace because companies now would have to register facilities list products and ingredients with the fda report serious adverse events none of this is required right now though there is a voluntary program in place that many um of the particularly the you know the large market leading companies um uh, participate in but um, an FDA would also be far more empowered with uh, mandatory recall authority, access to company records. Uh, and that's something that the FDA has always insisted uh, is within its realm of authority. Um, and the, although industry attorneys uh, are known to argue otherwise. Um, so it, it's really an interesting time, uh, I think, for FDA. I know it's been involved in those discussions. Um, Historically, the cosmetics industry has said that, you know, current regulations are sufficient and proportionate because cosmetics are extremely safe when compared with, you know, some of the other products that the FDA regulates, obviously. Um, but there have been uh, cosmetic safety issues that arise and they, they tend to get a lot of media attention and um, you kind of get the sense, you know, when FDA goes to investigate some of those issues that often, you know, I think it may 
might be sort of stonewalled a bit. It can't ac access records at once because uh, I have heard industry attorneys say that you don't have to provide them um, or it gets to the point of having to involve the US uh, Department of Justice in, in federal court. It has to make sort of a budgetary decision about you know moving forward with that. But um, in any event, I think the FDA authorized by this legislative proposal and some others that are on the table now or have been proposed uh, previously would really lower the bars to clear for FDA and, and it would have fewer hoops to jump through in order to find out exactly what the problems are um, when these issues arise in the cosmetics marketplace, um, when cosmetic products are linked to, you know, extraordinary numbers of adverse events. Um, I, I think the FDA would have an easier time ultimately enforcing products from the market, for example. It would be able to suspend facility registrations. Um, so it's really a comprehensive piece of legislation that would transform uh, cosmetics regulation. Um, and the new sort of regime could could shed new light on exactly how safe cosmetics truly are. I mean, I think they are probably very safe, but the FDA acknowledges there's just a lot about the cosmetics marketplace that it doesn't know, uh, and that includes the number, the numbers and types of adverse adverse event reports that companies receive about their products. Um, and there have been cases where, um, you know, FDA has gone in when when um, something has reached the level of public consciousness in terms of a safety issue with a cosmetic product or suspicions about a safety issue and they go in and, and suddenly they turn up, you know, thousands and thousands of adverse events at a company that, that just weren't communicated to the agency. So Califf's FDA, you know, uh, already has been engaged in these discussions with uh, the Senate Health Committee. Um, and I'm sure this is an issue that is going to continue to occupy the agency in some capacity uh, in coming months and, and years ahead. Um, just a side note on that, I mean, I think, you know, we're covering this, uh, a big issue there is the preemption piece. You know, industry doesn't really want to go forward with, uh, you know, committing to, uh, you know, a vastly more burdensome and costly system um, and still have to deal with all of the state and local requirements that are cropping up all across the country. Um, I'd say they want some strong federal preemption, which I know is sort of worked into the law in other areas that FDA uh, regulates. Um, so I, I, you know, that, that another discussion would be maybe talking about how those got in place and how industry managed to get that robust preemption. Um, because right now, you know, the NGO community is on the completely other side where they're saying, no, states should continue to be allowed to do whatever they see fit, you know, in terms of regulating ingredients and and requiring like warning labels on products and all these things that really, um, um, sort of complicate matters for, for cosmetics companies and they have to sort of negotiate this patchwork of requirements across the U.S. Um, and at the same time, when state and local governments are doing this, it, you know, it has the potential to sort of undermine what's going on at FDA um, and, and federal oversight. So that's a key issue in terms of uh, the ability of this legislation to move forward, I think. But um, again, you know, this is something that, yeah, I'm sure Caleb might be envious of, of you know, past uh, commissioners who maybe didn't have to put so much thought into what's happening on the cosmetics front, uh, but that's changed a lot in in certainly the past decade. Yeah, it's it it's interesting to you know, uh, the way a lot of these lawmakers like to think about the user fee bill is because it had it's because it's must pass and the FDA depends so much on timely passage including actually early passage. They can't, they really don't want it past the day before the fees expire. Um, they they tend not to put things in that don't already have widespread support either among lawmakers or among industry. Um, 
I mean, has has the cosmetics industry been like begging to be regulated? Like, you know, you hear so you hear a lot of some other industries talk about um, begging to be regulated. I don't think. I mean, you know, well, it's it's interesting. I mean, what I was just getting at with the preemption piece. I mean, I think if if the um, cosmetics industry could be assured that you know, yes, if we subject ourselves to sort of this 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 extraordinary amount of new regulation at the federal level, I think they. They are willing to go that route if they know that then they don't have to, yeah, like I said, be dealing with then conflicting, you know, requirements at the state level and 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 constantly having to change their approaches, you know, state by state and even sometimes, you know, within, you know, local governments and so forth. Um, so, to you know, in in that capacity, like yeah, I think they welcome um, modernization of the of the of the regulatory framework. I think most agree that you know. It makes sense to register facilities. Uh, the FDA needs to know a little bit better, you know, who's out there, who's selling these products, what are the, are the products out there, uh, and the ingredients being used. Um, but there's definitely resistance to mandatory recall authority, um, to some of the aspects of adverse event reporting, not so much serious adverse event reporting, but, you know, the record keeping requirements that are being proposed for all adverse events that a company receives. Um, for those at least to be stored. And then I think there are some proposals where they'd have to be like reported annually and other aspects. So I, it's very, it's contentious. And of course, you know, there's there's big industry and then smaller companies and they tend to have a different view on things. Um, and like I said, I mean, what I was getting at, I think earlier with the polarization effect, uh, I just, we haven't seen any real ability for like industry and NGOs to come to agreement around some really core issues. So, yeah, I don't, we'll see what happens with this, but um, I think the House user fee legislation doesn't include anything about cosmetics. Uh, the Senate proposal does. Um, so, yeah, we'll see, we'll see what goes forward here. It, it's, you know, I, I've been there before where I said, this is the year, this is the Congress where this happens, because it's just been going on for so long, but um but I think that, you know, there's there's some really important negotiations that have to happen and some common ground that needs to be found. Yeah, it's very interesting. We'll we'll see if they'll, they're able to do it in the next, uh, you know, I guess we can start talking about it as a matter of weeks at this point um, as opposed to months. But, uh, yeah, it's very interesting. I'm a little, I'm a little yeah, I'm dubious, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Another sort of long-running issue is OTC monograph reform. Uh, Malcolm, does, does Califf get any credit for gains on that front? Uh, thank you, Derek. And it's so interesting listening to Ryan and, and uh, Reed and, and Elizabeth. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to say I, I'll take a test at the end of the day, but there's a lot I didn't know that I've heard in the last 15 minutes. And uh, it's always good to talk with everybody. Um, this is one area where he's fortunate, where, you know, the momentum was already, you know, in full full gear, high gear, and there really were no problems that really could come up that could uh, stop the momentum. Um, so, you know, it's an area that I'm sure he's <laughs> every day is more grateful that is uh, going along and had started before he came back. Uh, having said that, uh, you know, the uh, Cedar office in charge of this, you know, they, they've been working diligently. However, their work is limited by the number of staff they have and and certainly part of their goals um, is a big part of their goals, I should say, is hiring staff. And then they still haven't reached even half of what they uh, want, what they need. 
uh, and and the clock starts ticking on October 1st, the start of the, the fiscal year 2023, that, that is when uh, the office has to respond within deadlines to requests for meetings. And then when proposals are made, they have they have deadlines for responding uh, to the proposals, uh, you know, which is the whole that's the, the nut of reform because the old monograph system, there was just no end to, to those processes. Um, and so uh, one could and one could uh, imagine that, you know, the start of a new fiscal year, there's going to be uh, some glitches, some problems, and, and probably a lot of complaints from industry about how how it's working. Yeah, that's very that that's very interesting. Are, are, are you tracking some issues with dietary supplements, too? Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, w- one more thing about OTC monograph. It's interesting that all the user fee uh a discussion and certainly there's the Senate and House bills. Uh, you know, OTC is not on there because it's uh, on a separate cycle. Uh, and I touched on this last time we spoke. Maybe at one point they'll 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 include the OTC monograph user fees in the whole big UFA uh, package, but uh, currently no. Uh, uh, he mentioned uh, dietary supplements in his uh, confirmation process, his confirmation hearing, and uh, you know it's it's. The, the that we don't have a regulation for lawful use of hemp ingredients in non-drug products regulated by FDA at this point is just ridiculous. Everybody knows that FDA, you know, while FDA wants Congress to tell exactly what to do, uh, everybody else is as well, FDA, why are you not doing it? Um, and so I, I'm sure not a day goes by when Califf and, and other people at FDA uh don't wish that congress would do something uh but uh as simple as it may seem there are complications on what's happened in the market what's happened because of the industry since uh, hemp was uh descheduled as a controlled substance under the 2018 farm bill uh which really really complicate uh, the the uh, possibility the potential for actually having a having a simple bill authorizing fda to waive its prohibition against using hemp in uh, supplements and food and other pro- other non-drug products because uh, it was uh, previously studied and approved as a drug. Um, also, the speaking of the the user fee bills, uh, they the Senate draft bill and I and I assume that's still a draft not has not been introduced uh, includes uh, two provisions very uh, interesting very important to the supplement industry. Uh, one is a deadline for a new dietary ingredient notification guidance, final guidance. Uh, the, the NDI notification guidance, uh, or I'm sorry, NDI notification requirement is really FDA's only way right now to have any sort of pre-market, not approval or clearance, but pre-market transparency into what uh, companies are doing in the way of new ingredients. Uh, and, and it was a, a marquee part of the uh, uh, of of the bill in 1994 that established the regulatory framework for the for the supplement industry uh, because it one allowed companies to uh, you know introduce uh, in- uh, ingredients that were not yet available and two it gave FDA uh, you know transparency into what those ingredients are but it hasn't worked and both the industry and the FDA will tell you that there are dozens perhaps more ingredients in, in vitamins supplements and so on available in the U.S. that should have been in the NDI notification process, but but weren't, but haven't been. 
the user fee bill also includes uh, uh, the Senate draft, at least, also includes a uh, requirement for pre-market note, uh, pre-market registration of all supplements uh, with the FDA. That's not just new products, but all products. And uh, the industry is split on this. Some say, you know, it's what we need. Others in the industry say, well, it's it, what it is is pre-market approval. And the legislation for, uh, you know, the, the regulatory framework for FDA explicitly says there's no pre-market approval needed. That's a big part of it, as, as big as the NDI notification part is. You know, it's like low barrier to market entry was uh, at the heart of what the lawmakers wanted to do with the legislation. And to uh, uh, implicitly give uh, FDA uh, a tool to say, no, you can't market that because you haven't registered it is basically tell, giving uh, FDA pre-market approval. I'm open to any argument, uh, to arguments that would, uh, uh, you know, uh, dissuade me from that position, from that from that thought. But I really agree with the with those in the industry who say that it's really tantamount to pre-market approval. Uh, I I really doubt the uh, the uh, uh, registration uh, provision will be will be will make it uh, from the draft bill into the uh, legislation introduced. However, I think the NDI notification uh, deadline guidance certainly will be part of that. It's very interesting, Malcolm, and you know you can see from all of the the uh, the issues we've been discussing here, all the directions that that Dr. Caleb is being pulled in. And we didn't even mention tobacco and the banning of menthol and flavors in cigarettes, which is another huge, huge issue that has generated a ton of controversy and is still kind of ongoing and threatens to suck up even more oxygen in the room. So... Uh- <laughs> We're fortunate because uh, the, the now the recently departed director of the Tobacco for Center Products, uh, Mitch Zeller, he wanted that center to be part of the smoking cessation uh, picture. He wanted to work cross centers with Cedar and others, uh, you know, to have tobacco and nicotine products be more, a bigger part of the smoking cessation. But well, that never transpired. So as a result, uh, HBW's coverage of, of tobacco has really uh uh, you know, uh, dwindle since then. And we're, and we strictly cover, uh, <laughs> and it's fortunate for us really, because we have a lot to cover, but we strictly cover, you know, tobacco, nicotine, when, when it's in the, uh, smoking cessation, nicotine replacement thera- uh, therapy arena. You know, before we wrap up here, I, I know we, we were talking a little bit offline about this and how it's, it's probably not fair to give a grade at this point, you know, for the first hundred days. But I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, ability to maybe ability to 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 make change or to get things to get his the goals, uh, you know, get things done that he wants to get done, um, you know, in light of everything that's going on and everything and all the things that are going to happen that he can't possibly foresee that are going to become number one priorities. I mean, where where do you do you think in, you know, however many years you know, from now when when he when he leaves that you know we'll see a changed uh, you know a changed agency i i think so uh, derek i uh, um expect that uh, he will make real progress on uh, these uh, clinical trial uh, uh transformation efforts i know sort of people have been saying that for uh, decades it feels like but uh um there's a lot of uh wind in his back on uh, um on this stuff, and uh, you know, if he can sort of kind of get through the uh, um, the various crises, I think he'll uh, um, 
he's so uh, um, uh, um, intertwined with that uh, community and so he's, he can bring such uh, gravitas as we're kind of both sides of the table sort of industry and uh, um, and regulators as we're kind of get that uh, um, get that moving that I feel like it, uh, um, it is really a, a real opportunity for uh, um, the healthcare system as we're going to have him uh, um, working on this project. Obviously, uh, um, he has to sort of have time to uh, to do that, which means he has to have not uh, not so many crises. And uh, it's just sort of, kind of <laughs> novelistic that sort of kind of that the, uh, you know, Abbott, Abbott uh, infant uh, formula recall uh, happened on uh, February 17th, the same day that he was torn. And it just seems like, uh, um, you know, it's something you couldn't uh, you couldn't make up. Obviously, it's a problem that sort of kind of didn't begin before he started the agency, but now sort of kind of they are uh, um, just sort of kind of they were kind of uh, um, began on the same uh, the same day, if you will, and uh, um, you know it sounds like they're able to uh, resolve that, and then to the uh, the extent that sort of that uh, um, uh, monkeypox does not become a thing, and uh, um, you know there's no uh, further controversies over perhaps uh, um, you know COVID vaccines for uh, the youngest kids, and uh, then he can really concentrate on uh, um, his clinical trial uh, passions, and I think uh, um, I think that that would be very good. Uh, you know the whole hundred days uh, conceit that we're using for this uh, um, uh, podcast, uh, you know that was sort of born under. Uh, um, uh, Franklin Delano uh, uh, Roosevelt's uh, administration. He sort of kind of, uh, you know, gave a uh, gave a speech at his hundred days and talking about sort of, kind of everything he had tried to do to uh, end the depression. And obviously, uh, he came in with that sort of being a uh, foreseen crisis for FDR. And uh, Robert Califf has had uh, perhaps some unforeseen uh, crises, but uh, um, you know, it's a uh, it's possible that at the end of uh, um, Kayla's tenure, we'll sort of kind of it'll uh, he'll be the same kind of uh, um, a regulatory icon that uh, um, FDR has uh, um, become in terms of American history. That uh, that may be over embellishing, so maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll downgrade downgrade him and sort of give him a a pass so far. I won't give him a letter grade, <laughs> but I'll give him a give him a pass so I can uh, I'll hedge my bets. So uh, yeah, I'm getting, getting a little grandiose there. I'll, I need to I need to stop. I'm going to jump in right away because I want to first point out that, uh, uh, Matt, I thought I was the only one on this call who was around when FDR was in office. So uh, 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 good to know I'm not Malcolm alone. Malcolm and I fought in the Civil War together, actually. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and we were on the right side, too, both of us. Uh, uh, you know, it, it's it's as Matt pointed out that, you know, who could who could, you know, make that up that, that the commissioner is sworn, sworn in the same day as the re- the recall of the product that is a pro- you know a type of product that is causing just unbelievable turmoil for him and and for FDA and and for the country and lawmakers too I I think you know again as I said to start I think he's the right person the right expert to uh, you know to bring about change in FDA and 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 there's like for instance, uh, when you mentioned uh, you know clinical trials, that's not really something that's really uh, important. What's well, important, but it's not really doesn't have a lot of exposure in OTC and uh, dietary supplements. But on the other side, for OTC and dietary supplements, there are important things he could do, and I'm sure he would like to do. Um, but I just don't. I think that uh, it's given the you know the just the ongoing turmoil, not just now, but just the whole political. Uh, and cultural and economic uh, turmoil that is a constant in in Washington, it'll be difficult for him to do. Uh, I, I I have not said, but I but I will. I want to point out that the, of course the last two days he was before the House and the Senate, uh, grilling him on the uh, on the infant formula problem. But 
given the timing, the you know, just the coincidence of the timing of this, he's very fortunate that there's not a, another F in FDA, Food, Drugs, and Firearms Administration, because if he was, you know, if he if the FDA was also responsible for firearms, can you imagine the what uh, questioning and and just. Uh, uh, accusations he would be under from from members of Congress, and and I don't mean to make light make light of anything, but it's a it's just a very uh, and and several of them several members in both the chambers and the, and the committees mentioned that, that that they were talking about this problem at a time when the country was uh, you know the victim of another uh, fire firearm uh, travesty. Yeah, it's a you know it, it's it's tough, and I'm sure he knew going in, and I've heard you know, expert, you know, ad, former advisors to various commissioners say that the first thing they, you know, one of the first things they tell you is don't expect to wait for things to calm down before you try and do the things you want to do because it'll never slow down. So, you know, it, you, you, you're trying to avoid moving from one crisis to the other and just, you know, putting out fires all day, you know, for, and then before you wake up and it's been four years and, you know, you're on your way out or, you know, so, you know, you kind of, you, tr- you try and I, I think they, they try and, and advise, you know, to have these kind of other things going, you know, kind of, you know, in maybe in the background, so to speak, while you're dealing with the bigger, the bigger problem, immediate problems. Um, as if it, I can add just one more thing, and, and this should be the last thing I'll say is that, uh, again, uh, to, to uh, reveal my age, you know, I was around when uh, President Carter, you know, created the Department of Education out of the Department of Health, Education and Welfare. And unless, uh, you know, the rules have changed since then, to use that term broadly, uh, you know, I, I really think there's a possibility for the White House, in this case, as President Biden to create uh, and well. More recently, obviously, President uh, George W. Bush created the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, I, I really think that it's it's time for the White House to act uh, and determine, you know, determine whether a separate food agency is needed, made up of USDA and and uh, FDA and other agencies' uh, offices. Yeah, it's an interesting question, and you know, there's certainly the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is there's territorial issues that you know some. Department heads may not be necessarily willing to give up those portions of the agency, you know, to to somebody else. And, you know, because it lowers their budgets, it reduces their staffing levels and and so forth. Um, you know, but that's beside the point, whether, you know, whether a massive government reorganization like that is is necessary or not i you know i'm i'm just not the expert on that it, it it's but it's an interesting question and again another thing that potentially could you know take up more time as you know as he tries to do things um as a communicator i'm just going to say um uh, the thing that i you know i'm i'm hoping gets done is the um Caleb has talked about wanting to improve communications out of the agency, fight misinformation and so forth, which has been a huge problem during the pandemic. It was a problem before the pandemic, but it's just been magnified that much more. We haven't really seen a whole lot of that yet, but I'm hoping that 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 there's a plan uh, in place to kind of, you know, whatever, however you need to do it. I'm not going to pretend to know the answer, but um, I hope they I hope they figure out a way to kind of at least deal with, you know, better, better handle a lot of these, the, the misinformation and, and kind of the, their message getting drowned out on in places like social media by people who 
you know, whether on purpose or not, don't want to, you know, don't want to believe what they're saying. Yeah, I would say, uh, Derek, to your question about, you know, will the agency be changed when uh, Dr. Califf, you know, leaves? I mean, I think obviously inevitably, you know, its forces are going to dictate that it will be somewhat changed. I mean, it's considering some of the things we've been talking about today about legislation on the table and so forth. Um, you know, and part of that, I mean, right now, I think um, Califf, a lot of this is just how is he rolling with the punches? How is he holding up under fire? I think he gets like a, a he's got to get some kind of baseline credit just for not running for the hills right now. But um, <laughs> but I mean, you know, he it, you also have to think about not only the immediate crises, but, you know, sort of on a related note, you know, what's the next one going to be? I mean, is there going to be, um, you know, delayed uh, supply effects because of, you know, recent uh, shutdowns in China? Uh, and, you know, if that hits then later in the summer, you know, are there just, you know, are we imagining all the scenarios where something else like this could happen? You have these ideas that FDA needs to be more tuned into sort of competitive dynamics and, and where, you know, industries are, are too concentrated and so forth, which you don't, I don't normally think of that as, as sort of FDA's core domain. Um, and there are just other things that just seem to be sort of uh, infringing on, on sort of, or, or impinging on, on FDA's um, mission and, and complicating it in terms of like um, even environmental stuff that you don't think about you know the FDA is a public health mission, but we're seeing, like in the in the sunscreen area, which is one sort of category that uh, of the OTC monograph system that, that Malcolm discussed. Um, you know, FDA is not only thinking about uh, the UV filters and their human health effects, which have come under question, um, uh, and trying to balance that with you know people's need for sun protection at a time of like escalating crises. You know, in terms of sun, skin cancer and so forth, but also now. Um, under the what was the law um it's an e epa law but in, in other words uh, fda has to consider its sunscreen decision and whether that's going to have an impact on the environment because uv filters have been tied to marine coral uh problems like you know are they contributing to kill off of, of marine coral because there have been uh studies linking um sunscreen active ingredients to adverse effects on coral and, and FDA then has to say, okay, so if we declare this ingredient as uh, generally recognized as safe and effective and therefore, you know, marketable on an OTC basis, you know, is that essentially, you know, guaranteeing a certain amount of, uh, of use and then exposure to the environment and in which case, you know, we need to uh, provide some sort of assessment to the EPA and it's just things that you never think that would really fall in FDA's lap. Um, that it's getting now. So there's just so much, uh, so much going on. You just see, you know, all the directions that uh, FDA and, and uh, the leadership are being pulled in. Um, so, so we'll yeah, see yeah. how he fares with that. The environmental stuff is, is a really interesting issue. I just wrote a story last week about there's a, there's a, an issue with propellants in inhalers now uh, that's environmentally related where they're, they're changing to a more, um, a lot of, a lot of the brands companies that have committed as part of a, a uh, international env environmental agreement to change the the propellant in the inhalers to a more environmentally friendly uh, chemical. And the generic companies need to know, they need guidance from FDA and first they need research, you know, to show, to, to help inform that, how, how to handle that. And, you know, are you bioequivalent if you don't use the same propellant when it's changed? And, you know, there are all these, you know, issues that, you know, they kind of pop up that they, you know, they need, they need answered. And, um, you know, it, yeah, so that that's absolutely a, a, a huge, a huge issue. 
Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com, where you can also find links to MedTech Insight and HBW Insight. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to this special edition of the Pink Sheet Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery with Matt Hobbs, Elizabeth Orr, Reed Miller, Ryan Nelson, and Malcolm Spicer. Stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.